The place is a dank dungeon deep in the bowels of the dreaded Mamertine prison in the great city of Rome. Illumination of the excavated remains in no way enhances its attractiveness. The date is around the 12th year of the reign of Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, or as is more commonly known, the Emperor Nero. That is, by our later dating system, around 67 AD, Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. If you'd suggested then to anyone that the Lord in question was a Jew, born in relative poverty, in a small and obscure province of the Roman Empire, and that the world's dating system would one day be based on the year of his birth, they would have thought you were out of your mind. Especially as the person in question was executed by the Romans outside the city of Jerusalem some 33 years later by that most barbaric and humiliating means reserved for the commonest of criminals and slaves, crucifixion. Despite this, the claim perpetrated by the followers of man Jesus by name that he had risen bodily from the dead and was none other than the Lord, God's Son come to earth in human flesh, began to spread. The story took hold. And the followers of the way, as they were called, began to multiply at an amazing rate throughout the eastern half of the Roman Empire, around the Mediterranean, from its beginnings in Jerusalem, finally reaching even to the great city of Rome itself. But now to return to our date, some 30 years after his crucifixion, many of the first followers of Jesus are dead, many martyred for their faith. And following a devastating fire that consumed large parts of the city of Rome, the increasingly paranoid Emperor Nero had picked on the Christians, as they were nicknamed, as scapegoats, and thousands had been rounded up. The fortunate ones had been killed on the spot. The less fortunate, subjected to a slow and agonizing death, torn to pieces by animals in the arena, or tied to pillars, daubed with tar, and set on fire to illuminate the emperor's garden parties. And among those rounded up and brought in chains to Rome, some two or three years later, was the man most responsible for propagating the worship of Jesus. A former member of that most orthodox of Jewish religious groups, the Pharisees, the man named Saul, or to give him by his Greek name, by which he was better known, Paul. Now in his mid-sixties, prematurely aged by 25 years of the most incredible hardship, he sits in that dungeon in the Mamertine prison, chained to a guard. As a Roman citizen, he has the right of trial before the emperor but he knows that the verdict is already certain. He will be found guilty. Within weeks, if not days, he will be executed. So from his cell, he writes a last letter to a younger colleague, a protege, his son in the faith, Timothy by name. It's a kind of final will and testament. And as he draws his letter to a close, he gives final instructions to Timothy. In words drawn from the law courts, He writes, I give you, Timothy, this solemn charge. What is Paul's charge to Timothy? Is it to give up, to lie low, 
until the heat dies down, we can summarize it in three simple words in English and in the original language. Preach the word. Preach the word. So let's read it in context in 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8, before we focus on these verses. It's page 1197, if you've got one of the Bibles, church Bibles, or wherever you can find it on your device or whatever. My church have now introduced their own app, and you can even look at it in six different versions in English while you're listening to the sermon or being distracted from listening to the sermon. Anyway, I'm assuming you're not keeping up with the cricket score or anything else. So, 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. With great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is God's word. Preach the word. To many, the word preach may convey the image of some dry and dusty eulogy delivered from a high pulpit within the walls of an ancient building. But that is not what the word means or what the writer means. The word used here is the word used of a herald. Walking down the streets of a city and announcing in a loud voice a message from the king. What he says is not his own opinion, but that of the highest authority in the land. It is not a party political broadcast which will be followed by another herald who says something different. It is the word. Of course, Paul here is not talking about a message from a human king, but from the one who is king of kings, God himself. This God, he's just reminded Timothy in the previous chapter of his letter, God has spoken through the Holy Scriptures, which he says are God-breathed. And he's spoken finally and fully through his son, who is the word. And the word from the word is good news or gospel for all people. So that good news must be heralded, proclaimed to the world. And this has been the life and calling of this man, Paul, ever since he was stopped dead in his tracks and his life was turned around on his way to the city of Damascus to persecute Christians. In the opening part of his letter, he reminds Timothy of this gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, of this gospel I was appointed a herald. It's the same word, the noun, from the word preach. And an apostle and a teacher. And Paul's heralding days are almost over. So he gives Timothy this solemn charge to preach the word. And John, you've already reminded the children, so you know this, but I cannot overemphasize it. Your priority as pastor 
along with all the many other things you'll be called to do, is to preach the word. There are many useful and helpful things that pastors get called to do, and I've been involved in quite a few of them, and some of them very strange. But anyway, (laughs) the one supreme thing you must do above all else is to preach the word. It is essential for the growth of this church. It is essential for the survival of this church. When I first came to Charlotte Chapel in 1992, I was kindly invited for lunch by a fellow minister from a neighboring city center church. We met in the cafe located in his wonderful, spacious building, strategically located in the center of Edinburgh. And as we sat at lunch, he said, and I recall his words clearly, you may know, he said, this church has a famous pulpit. I did. I was honored to even be there. The former pastor a century before, people had queued up in the streets actually to get a seat in the church, a bit like this, but even more fun. Well, continued the present minister, we're not into preaching. Our mission is to serve the city centre community with our social outreach community and programme. A few years later, I was invited to preach in the church. Again, a wonderful privilege to sit in the same pulpit as Alexander White, the former minister. And looking around, my wife, who doesn't have a church background, looked around and said, where are all the children and young people? Are they away for the weekend? And I said, no, there aren't any. And unless they do something, it will be closed in 20 years. I was wrong. It was 18 years. They closed the doors and sold the building to Charlotte Chapel as its new home. It was an occasion for great rejoicing, but sadness that the number of churches in the city was reduced by one. Don't misunderstand. I'm not against any and every church serving the local community in any and every way possible, but not instead of its greatest priority which is to preach the word. So let's look at our passage. I simply want to highlight very briefly, briefly for me anyway, um, three reasons for the priority of preaching from this passage. Three future events which motivate you to preach the word, John, and this church to make this your priority. So here's the first. Preach the word because, one, Christ Jesus is coming. Can you see that right at the beginning? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. The word appearing is an interesting one. Literally, his epiphany. An epiphany is the revelation of the presence and glory of an important person. I started out my missionary career... 50, well, 50 years ago, 1972, that's even more than 50 years, that's horrendous. Anyway, um, yeah, you thought I began as a boy looking at my age. But anyway, let's not go there. Um, and I was assigned to work with a colleague before I was married, and we worked on writing down a, a tribal language in central India for the first time. And we based ourselves in the great city of Nagpur. If you know nothing about India, it's right in the middle, and it's famous for only, well, it's famous for two things, oranges, And the second thing, it's one of the hottest places in the subcontinent. It was a hot, dirty, 
dusty, typical Indian city. And I love India, and even seeing pictures yesterday of some chef wandering around India brings back happy memories. One day we noticed something interesting. There were people out on the streets, sweeping the streets. There were people painting the buildings, clearing all the rubbish that littered the streets constantly. The whole city was undergoing a renovation. So I said to one of my friends, Kahu, what's happening? And he said, the Prime Minister Indira Gandhi is coming to visit Nagpur. And everyone was getting ready. That was Mrs. Gandhi's epiphany in Nagpur. And she rolled in in her motor car. In the first century, the Roman emperors used to pride themselves, thought themselves to be gods. And when they came to your local town, they, they made an epiphany. But the epiphany mentioned here in verse 1, and again in verse 8, appearing, is the epiphany, it will be the final and full revelation of the incredible glory of God seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And every person who is living and has ever lived will see it and see him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord then his kingdom will be established forever. So in view of this fact, this coming event, Paul urges Timothy, preach the word, herald the news of the epiphany of Christ Jesus the King. The word from King Jesus, which the herald proclaims, is a call for people to lay down their arms and accept his gracious peace terms. In another of his letters, Paul describes the Christian not only as a herald, but also an ambassador of King Jesus, and he describes the peace terms which have been made possible. He writes 2 Corinthians 5, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What wonderful words. We could spend the rest of the day just exploring them, but we won't. Be reconciled to God. That is the herald's message, to lay down your arms before the arrival of King Jesus, before it is too late. So let me simply say, I know hardly anybody here. Have you laid down your arms? Have you submitted? Or are you still in rebellion to King Jesus? He will judge the living and the dead. In that same letter to the Christians in Corinth, he says, we who have this commission recognize we do so because Christ is coming as king and he is coming as the judge. 2 Corinthians 5, earlier in the chapter. So we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men the fear of the Lord. Now that's a powerful motivation for any person. But John, it's especially a powerful motivation for you as a pastor, for your fellow elders, that one day we'll stand before King Jesus and give an account of our lives and our ministry. I find that a very sobering thought. And he will ask one simple question. Did you preach the word? John, you're accountable to this church as pastor. You're accountable to your fellow elders. But ultimately, you're accountable to Jesus the King and to Jesus the church. That is the first reason to preach the word because... 
Christ Jesus is coming. But notice what follows from it. Secondly, preach the word because difficult days are coming. Verses 2 to 5. Notice the connecting word. Preach the word for because the time is coming. In the Bible Speaks commentary, John Stott writes, Paul is giving a second basis on which to ground his charge. It is another future event. Not now the coming of Christ, but before that end point, the coming of dark and difficult days. If you know this letter to Timothy, and if you've never read it, go home and read the whole thing. It won't take you long. But in chapter 3, he begins by talking about the fact there will be terrible times in the last days. The last days are not just the final moment before Christ returns. The last days are the last chapter in the history of the world between the ascension of Christ into heaven and the return of Christ from heaven. These are the last days. And in chapter 3, there's a general description of the godless character of people in this period. But chapter 4 focuses on how people respond to the word that is preached. Paul foresees a day already beginning in which people will reject the teaching of God's word. They will reject the message of the preacher. Even though it is sound, he says, a word that means life-giving, healthy, they will reject it in favor of things they want to hear. And the key to this problem lies in the faculty of hearing and understanding. They have what he calls itching ears syndrome. They will turn away from the truth. They will turn aside to myths. Negatively, people will shut their ears to the truth. Like the Jewish leaders who could not bear to hear what Stephen, the first martyr, was telling them, instead dragged him away and stoned him to death. You read that in Acts chapter 7. Perhaps Paul remembers that, for he was there holding the coats of the stone throwers. However, ears are made for hearing. Human beings are rational beings. I don't need to tell you that in a place like Cambridge. Our minds need to be stimulated and filled. So when people turn away from the truth, he says, they turn aside to myths, that is, stories with no historical foundation, stories of fanciful human invention. As G.K. Chesterton, that larger-than-life writer and Christian apologist, put it a century ago, when people stop believing in God, it is not that they no longer believe in anything, but rather they believe in everything. And there are always people around, myth-makers, who say what itching ears want to hear. Unfortunately, their itching ears are never satisfied as they seek more and more knowledge. As Paul put it earlier in this letter in chapter 3, verse 7, they are always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Now, Paul envisages that such people and attitudes will become widespread and were even present in the churches. What will Timothy do in such a situation? Will he give up in despair? More to the point, what will we do as we see such things becoming increasingly widespread, not only in our society, but in our churches? Will we dilute the message, playing, downplaying the bits that are politically or socially acceptable? Or will we give up and retreat behind the barricades into our ghettos to await the return of Christ? Paul tells Timothy we cannot do that. Instead, being forewarned that such things will happen, he gives the response to the problem. Notice very briefly a superficial look at the text. The response to the problem, keep going at all times. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Paul tells Timothy to be prepared in season and out of season. There is no off-season for preaching the gospel. 
My son is into falconry as a hawk. He used to have a dog and ferrets. And there is a season I discovered when you're allowed to go and do falconry. And he looked forward to those when the season began. But there is no off-season preaching the gospel. The word be prepared may have military overtones. The idea of a soldier who's always on call at any time. It's not his own convenience that is most important, but that of his commanding officer. He's already said to Timothy, your motivation is to please him in chapter 2, verse 4. It may also include the idea that we're to be ready in all sorts of situations to proclaim the message to others. Not just in formal times like a church like this, but irregular times, unusual, as opportunities arise, as Peter writes, we're always to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have within us. Notice the message must address the mind to correct, the will to rebuke, and the emotions to encourage. Notice also Paul has already just said that the Holy Scriptures do the same thing. But God employs a human voice to convey the message. Unless we should think we can barge in with insensitivity, take it or leave it approach, Paul adds the words with great patience and careful instruction. May take many months and years. He's writing to Timothy, who's serving Christ in the great city of Ephesus. Paul spent three years in Ephesus on his journeys. And one of his journeys, he stopped there for three years. We're told by Luke in the book of Acts that he had a set time every day when he preached and taught and debated. He didn't just proclaim, he debated, he reasoned, he dialogued with people. Someone has calculated that if you count it three years, it was over 3,000 hours of teaching he spent in the city of Ephesus. And he's telling Timothy, you are to keep going at all times. Don't give up, even if people don't want to hear the message. Keep going at all times. And he tells Timothy, secondly, keep calm in all situations. Look what he says. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. The verb translated, keep your head, is literally keep sober. We must not become intoxicated by every novelty that comes along in the church. I look back over 60 years of being a Christian, and I could just recite all the different trends that have come and gone in the church that were the answer to everything. Some of the most amazing and weird things that people said. And if you're a pastor, the danger is to follow the trends. And the danger for your congregation, someone said, if you're a pastor who does that, your people will end up with spiritual whiplash, which I think is... A nice expression for how to put it. Such a stand will not be popular. It will lead to hardship, but must be endured. It's not just enough to react to suffering. Paul tells Timothy, be proactive, do the work of an evangelist. Always preach the gospel. I spent most of the last 10 years listening to other people preach sermons, trying to mentor preachers and pastors. You won't believe the number of times I've listened to a sermon And the pastor may preach and expound the Bible, but never explains clearly what the gospel is. We must always preach the gospel. Pastor, teacher, evangelist. We live in the same troubled times as Timothy. We live in difficult times. Preaching is work. It is very hard work. One of the questions I'm frequently asked by people who know that I'm a preacher of sorts is, how long does it take you to preach a sermon? And I think they think after 50 years of preaching, 
Well, you know, I watch much of the day on Saturday night and then I get an envelope and jot down a few points on the back of the envelope and I turn up on Sunday morning and preach. It still takes me, of course I'm getting older and slower, but it still takes me around about 15 to 20 hours of hard work to prepare a sermon, to preach. And John is going to be doing that. He needs your help and encouragement. So preach the word because Christ Jesus is coming, one. Preach the word, secondly, because difficult days are coming. And thirdly and finally, I'm getting my third and final point here, the most obvious reason of all, preach the word because Paul's departure is coming. Verses 6 to 8. He says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Paul the herald, Paul the ambassador, is about to be recalled by the king. He's about to literally lay down his life, to pour out his life as a drink offering, a sacrifice, a thank offering to God. And he writes that the time for my departure is near. The word departure is a lovely word. William Barclay, in one of his uh, commentaries, explained words in the New Testament. It literally means loosening. And he says, the word of loosening oxen from the yoke after a hard day's work plowing the fields. Paul's labors are almost over. It's the word use of loosening the guy ropes of a tent when you prepare to move on. And Paul was a tent maker by trade. He's about to strike camp for a final time and move into a permanent home. It's the word use of the mooring ropes of a ship being pulled away as the ship sails out over the horizon. He's about to set out on that last journey over the horizon into the present, into heaven and the presence of God. And it's the word use of a prisoner being loose from his shackles that bind him. Paul is about to experience that himself. But before Paul departs the scene, he has one final priority. He's leaving. He wants to hand on the baton to Timothy. And so earlier in this letter, he says to Timothy, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a reliable man who will also be qualified to teach others. That is the third reason why we must preach the word. Otherwise, our generation may be the last generation, at least in our nation, to hear the gospel. This is what happened in the churches in past, if you know your church history. All the churches mentioned in the New Testament was swept away by the rise of Islam from the 7th century and onwards. And that is the 21st century. John Studd again writes helpfully, challengingly. All around us we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp of the gospel, fumbling it in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. A new generation of young Timothys is needed who will guard the sacred deposit of the gospel, who are determined to proclaim it and are prepared to suffer it and who will pass it on pure and uncorrupted to the next generation, which in due course will rise up to follow them. John, you were one of these young, well, youngish, <laughs> Timothys. But I want to encourage you, look for the next generation. I was 17 years in Charlotte Chapel. At the end of it, if you go to the Charlotte Chapel website, maybe one evening you can't sleep, there, there are 845 of my sermons listed on there. And it's kind of, and I think, whoever is going to remember any of these things, who knows the lasting effect, but they're there. But I spent the last 10 years mentoring other preachers and teaching in two colleges. And it's been really encouraging to have an impact to the next generation. So John, as well as preaching the word, look out for those that must be in a city like this, in a church like this, young men 
who can be trained to preach the word, to pass on the gospel. I know you've planted as a church other churches. Keep that vision in focus. So Paul's departure is coming. He knows that while Caesar's verdict may be death, the verdict from the highest court, the supreme authority will be not guilty. He may lose his head, but he will gain a crown. He's fought the good fight. He's finished the course. He's kept the faith. And now he has wonderful prospects. Look what he says is our final verse. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Believe me, some of you know this. As you get older, you begin to think about what lies ahead. How much longer have I got? What's my prospects? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have glorious prospects because your longing for his appearing is epiphany. So I simply ask you again, not knowing anyone here, if it was today, are you ready to depart? Whatever age you may be. And whatever age at the end of life, we are always ready to depart. I think of a lady in Charlotte Chapel. She'd served as a missionary in South America. She ended up in a nursing home. And I went to visit her and she said, you know what I'm like, Pastor? She said, I'm like those people sitting in the airport lounge waiting for my flight number to be called. Oh, that's a lovely thought, isn't it? But who knows when the flight number may be called. Do you, do you have the same prospects? Are you longing for his appearing? So almost finished. We began by setting the scene. Paul in prison, awaiting trial before the emperor Nero, facing execution. So what happened next? Because the Bible doesn't tell us. Almost certainly, Paul, soon after he wrote this, within days, months, months perhaps at the most, he was found guilty taken from his prison cell, and as a privileged Roman citizen who would not be crucified, he was taken to the, a designated spot on the Ostian Way, three miles outside Rome, and his head was lopped off. He lost his head but gained a crown. We can be certain what happened to the Emperor Nero. For a year or so later, when the tide of public opinion turned against him, he took his own life in ignominious circumstances. What would amaze anyone who lived in the first century is their respective reputations in the 21st century. Nero was a prolific writer. Not a single thing he wrote has survived. This letter of Paul, along with the others in the New Testament, has not survived. It has been read and translated into several thousand different languages in the world. Indeed, as one writer comments, the time has come when people call their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. <laughs> if you had been a betting man or woman, which I hope you're not, in the first century, when Paul wrote his letter, you would have been given extremely long odds for the survival of the Christian faith beyond a decade or two. Yet today the world's dating system is based on the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. He's worshipped by countless millions throughout the world. And the reason why? Because Timothy and others picked up the baton, took up the challenge to preach the word. There are many parallels as I reflect on it between the situation of the church in the West at the beginning of the 21st century 
and that of the church at the end of the first century, not least the pessimistic predictions about its survival. The key to the survival of the church in our nation and the challenge for our generation, for every church, for you, John, for Eden Baptist Church, is to take up the challenge and to preach the word. And may God encourage you and help you.